Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. We believe Jamie was in the home at the time of the homicides, and we believe she is still in danger. A brutal murder in the middle of the night and a 13-year-old girl missing. The case of Jamie Kloss captures the nation's attention. The sense of urgency is growing by the minute here in Barron County, Wisconsin. A community on edge. We're all scared. Who, who did this? Who would right. do something like this? A family desperate to find her. My life was ripped apart and shattered into pieces. A mystery in a small town. I've been doing this for 20 plus years and I just don't know what happened in this case. But hope never lost. Thank God, after those 88 days... We at least got answers. I'm Lou Raguse. This is 88 Days, The Jamie Claus Story. Chapter 7, The Letter. Well, the man accused of kidnapping Jamie Claus and killing her parents was in a Barron County courtroom today for a very brief appearance. Tonight, Lou Raguse looks into what happened today and where this case goes from here. Jake Patterson's court hearing on February 6th lasts just three minutes. He's there in person this time instead of through video conferencing. He nods at his family in court and says, I love you. The family of Jim and Denise Kloss again is there in large numbers. Patterson waives his right to a preliminary hearing. That just means he won't force the prosecutors to call witnesses yet for the case to move forward. That's nothing out of the ordinary in a case like this. The judge orders Patterson to stand trial on the charges and schedules an arraignment for the end of March where Patterson would enter a plea. Neither Patterson's attorneys nor the prosecutor give interviews after the hearing ends. To get a sense of where the case will likely go from here, I schedule an interview with a defense attorney who's not affiliated with the case, someone who can speak a lot more freely about it. Aaron Nelson from Hudson, Wisconsin, might be the best defense attorney I've seen inside a Wisconsin courtroom. So I trust his opinion on something like this. So where would this case go from here? So typically at an arraignment is when the defense officially announces what their plea is. The defendant would come in and enter his plea. I would expect in this case, like every case, especially serious cases, that plea would be not guilty. So what are the odds that he rolls in there and and pleads guilty and it all comes to an end? In my opinion, zero. Okay. The public wonders if somebody did a detailed confession, why wouldn't they just plead guilty and put an end to it? Obviously, every case is different. Each person needs to make their own decision. But I imagine his lawyers are are investigating to see whether or not that statement would be admissible. Um, There's also just no incentive for a person to do that. There might be some sort of plea negotiation that goes on, and if so, they might be, for lack of a better term, rewarded in making them do less work. So unless you get something, you don't typically give something. Mm -hmm. And so there might be some benefit of the bargain, there might be some other leverage, um, there might be no risk in going forward with trial. And so at the end of the day, to me, it's a matter of why would they? 
Yeah. Some people are wondering if Jamie Kloss would have to come and testify in person at the court. Um, that's going to be a tactical decision by the state and the state's attorneys. Obviously, they have to prove their case. If they think that they can prove their case without her being there in person, they might decide to do that. If they think her testimony is necessary to prove one of the elements, then yes, she would need to be there in person, take an oath, sit on the witness stand, and be uh, able to be visually confronted by uh, Mr. Patterson. Okay. Why couldn't she just videotape something and they play that in the court? The United States Constitution and the Confrontation Clause, for the most part, prohibit that. Aaron also tells me that a case like this can take a year before the trial even starts. So with it now looking inevitable that Patterson will plead not guilty and work toward a trial in a year, I begin to wind down and concentrate on other stories. That is, until one day, when I get to work and find a letter in my mailbox. Right now at 6, the man charged with kidnapping Jamie Kloss sends a letter to Carol Evan from jail, answering questions we've all been wondering. Thanks for joining us today. Carol Evan News received a letter from the Polk County, Wisconsin jail. The name on the envelope, Jake Patterson. He's a man charged with kidnapping Jamie Kloss and killing her parents. In the letter, Patterson answered nearly a dozen questions posed to him by Carol Evans, Lou Ragus, and Lou joins us now with the contents of that letter. Yeah, when Jamie was found, uh, we had questions about what happened and why and that prompted me to write Jake Patterson a letter asking many of the questions that you've been asking us surprisingly he answered 88 Days producer Ellie Coder joins me now to talk about the letter I received from Jake Patterson I have about a million questions for you but let's just get to the good stuff right away we've got the letter sitting right in front of us looking real creepy so so I grab this letter, pull it out of the mailbox. It's addressed to me, and, it, and the return address says it's from Jake Patterson in the Polk County Jail. Now, he's being held in the Polk County Jail because the Barron County Jail, Jamie's cousin works there as a jailer. So they moved him to Polk County because of that. And there's a, a, a red stamp on it that says, Mailed from the Polk County, Wisconsin Jail. So it looks very official. The stamp's on the front and the back. I open up the letter, and it looks like a, a torn piece of normal white paper it's handwritten and it it uses a lot of shorthand almost like he's text messaging me starts out with lou hi idk which means i don't know if i'll actually send this i'll answer some of your questions some i can't and there's all sorts of stuff scribbled out on it and then at the bottom it says that that scribble equals self-redaction lol yeah and the scribbles are big black bold redaction kind of boxes. He's obviously scribbling it out so that we can't read what he wrote beneath there. Yeah. To back up, you sent him a letter first. Right. So remember, he was arrested and his first court appearance was January 14th. And so once I figured out where he was going to be held, I figured that there were some questions that were not completely answered in the criminal complaint or in court. There's some lingering questions. So I wrote him a letter and I, I wrote it, you know, very straightforward, typewritten, no pleasantries, just, Jake, I have some questions, and I have five numbered questions on that first letter. I sent it, and I never heard back. And, and so then a month later, I sent a second letter, which was basically just the first letter with an additional six questions added to it. So all told, sent him 11 questions. Um, the second letter I sent sometime in February, I received this letter from him at the beginning of March. One of the first thing I noticed is that he has 
his answer is numbered on here. And, and that's when I realized that, well, he's directly answering my 11 questions. He has his, his answers here numbered one through 11. So take me through it. Let's go through and see the questions you asked, how he answered, and then let's kind of talk about all of it after each one. Okay, sounds good. So my first question for him was, why did you confess when you were caught? And why did you confess in such detail? And his answer was, I knew when I was caught, which I thought would happen a lot sooner, I wouldn't fight anything. I tried to give them everything, wasn't completely honest, so that they didn't have to interview Jamie. They did anyways, and they hurt her more for no reason. And there was a small section in there that was scribbled out. He's sounding like he's not the one who hurt Jamie. The police are the ones. That's kind of interesting, and that'll be kind of a theme on, on this letter, is that he's making it sound like he was doing them a favor. Like, I, I want to confess so I didn't hurt Jamie. And then, and then the police are the ones that actually interviewed her, even though they didn't need to, and they hurt her more for no reason. It's, it's bizarre. He, he, he's being protective of Jamie, even though he's the one that caused all of this. Question two says, what's your plan now? Plead guilty or take this case all the way to trial? And he says, plead guilty. I want Jamie and her family to know that. Don't want them to worry about a trial was actually going to on the 6th, but in a case like this, it's not really allowed. So the judge moved it to the 27th of March. Now, remember, February 6th was that hearing that was very short. He waived his preliminary hearing, which was not out of the ordinary. And the next hearing on the calendar is March 27th. And so that, that's huge because we're fully expecting him to come in and plead not guilty at his arraignment. Because on these big cases... Even if it eventually ends with a guilty plea, it doesn't happen this early in the case. There's all these things that need to go through the process of being litigated. And I remember this being one of the big headlines from the letter because it's another admission of guilt. I agree with that. I think this is the big headline is Jake Patterson says he's going to plead guilty. And like you said, not just that, but this is another confession now de facto. Yeah. That first question, again, I asked him, why did you confess? And that's a question that I think is something that really doesn't get asked that much because when there is a confession, that's such huge news. And that's, that's the focus of what you're reporting on is, okay, the, the suspect confessed and here's what he said happened. But when you probe into why did someone confess, then you kind of get to the motivation a little bit more. And that's what I was going for with that question. Okay, number three. The third question says, what led you to want to kidnap a girl in the first place? And his answer just says, it's not black and white. And then he scribbled something out. I was a little disappointed there that he didn't go further into, because a lot lot of us want to know, you know, this motivation, like what would cause someone to do that. And and that's one of the big things that's missing in the criminal complaint is, what was your motivation? Like, what would make you want to do that as you're driving to work one day and see a girl get on the bus. Not that there's any expectation that he would even tell the truth, but no, it would it, still be interesting to hear how you're he would right. answer that in more than just, it's not black and white. Everything has to be taken with a grain of salt, but yet you want to know why. Number four says, do you have any remorse or regrets for the things you did? And his answer is, huge amounts. I can't believe I did this. And there's a large section in here that's scribbled out. That's another one of those headlines, I can't believe I did this. And I think it's kind of interesting when you think about that statement. It's not, I feel so awful that I killed Jim and Denise Kloss and I caused all this trauma to Jamie. It's more of like a self-reflection, like, wow, I can't believe I did this. Number five says, my question was, what was your long-term plan if Jamie had not escaped that day? And he writes, 
won't say. It was really stupid looking back, though. This just goes back to the criminal complaint and and those horrifying details of hiding her under the bed. And also, I had just learned that he applied for a job on the day that he was caught. So it's... he was planning apparently to work eight hours a day, 45 minutes away from his home, what, while she's still under the bed? It's like, it, I just want to know what, what was the end game here? Number six says, my question was, did you confide in anyone or leave any hints that people failed to pick up on? And he just answers no, and there's a part that's scribbled out. I think it, that's maybe a reassuring answer that, you know, he he wasn't, taunting people and you know leaving clues behind or crumbs to pick up on it's just basically it sounds like he committed the crime and then he just tried to get away with it from then on and he didn't he didn't just hide it from the community he hid it from people close to him too yeah number seven i asked did your family really have no clue how often were family members in your cabin and how close did they come to discovering jamie under the bed this is one of his longer answers he writes no one knew my dad only came on saturdays the same time every day So it was a routine. Jamie hides on Saturday. My family respects privacy, so no one even went in my room. That's kind of interesting because we don't know the details of what happened during those 88 days that Jamie was in captivity. And that's something that I made a point of not asking about. I I feel like Jamie's privacy is very important and sharing those details are not necessary. But in this answer, he, he kind of reveals that, you know, she wasn't chained up the whole time and and that implies to me that he's controlling her with his mind it's you know mind control it's brainwashing to a certain extent making her feel like she can't escape because of fear another thing is he really kind of puts his family on a moral high ground here my family respects privacy so no one went in my room i feel like he's defensive of his own family and and the fact that they didn't know anything this was on me. It has nothing to do with them. And you had an inkling that he might. The the I remember you telling me the reason that you wanted to ask that question is you had a a feeling that he would try to kind of defend his family. Yeah, based on him, the way that he acknowledged his family in the courtroom, and and they are obviously very distraught over what happened, just bawling their eyes out at every court hearing. And a lot of people just wonder how did they not know though? If people were in this cabin, how do you not know that a girl's being held there? And and that's part of the unanswered questions you know how did he get away with it and it seems like he's protecting them a little bit too so that they can't they won't be looked at negatively for maybe his actions yeah number eight did you ever return to baron after the crime or insert yourself in any of the vigils or anything being held in jamie's honor did you ever get close to her family following the shootings and kidnapping he just writes i stayed away from baron which is reassuring yeah it's it's reassuring and it, when you look back, it, I asked the question because you wonder if he was at that big ground search where they collected everyone's IDs in hopes of potentially catching the person if they're inserting themselves. And you watch crime shows and, and movies and so forth where that sort of thing always happens, where this sadistic person puts themselves back amongst the investigators. Olivia Benson like spots playing the a criminal game. in the crowd and goes running after him behind the police tape. Right. I guess, you know, real life is he just was trying to get away with it. Number nine. How closely did you follow the news coverage? And was Jamie aware of the news coverage and the extent to which people were searching for her? And his answer is, I followed it through my phone. If something popped up on TV about it, I would change the channel, would tell Jamie, I'm sorry, I can't watch this. I don't know what she knew. It says IDK, what she knew. Remember when the neighbors did the interview about uh, how they helped Jamie after she escaped? Uh, They mentioned that 
she was surprised that they knew who she was. And so I really wondered to what extent did she know? Did she know that her face was being plastered everywhere? Did she know about these huge searches that went on? And it would be a little reassuring if she she knew that everybody was looking for her. And uh, I think the answer is a little bit disturbing because he says, I'm sorry, I can't watch this. Like he's the poor victim that can't see this stuff on TV. I'm sorry, Jamie, I, I can't go, I can't deal with this. That paints a really, that question sticks with me so much and it paints such a odd picture of what it must have been like inside that cab cabin. He may, basically sounds like they were sitting there watching TV together. Uh, it, again, just that mind control, you know, just apparently letting her live freely in the cabin, but at the same time making her feel like she can't leave. And then hiding her under the bed if anybody came around. Ugh, all right. Number 10, my question was, when in your life did you realize you were capable of doing something like this? I just watched a 2020 special on the BTK killer, and he told a reporter that he knew as a teen that he wanted to do something like this one day, and he was jealous over the attention other killers like Ted Bundy were receiving. Did you feel any of those same thoughts? And his answer is, the cops say I planned this thoroughly and that I said that. They're really good at twisting your words around, put them in different spots, straight up lie, little mad about that, trying to cover up their mistakes, I guess. This was mostly on impulse. I don't think like a serial killer. I thought that was one of the most uh, interesting answers that he gave. First of all, I don't think like a serial killer. I mean, it just opens up. The question, well, what do you think like then? And, and again, he says mostly, this was mostly an impulse. He's disputing the police saying that it was planned out. Well, remember the, the police told us, or the, through the criminal complaint, it says that he went to Walmart and bought a face mask. He stole license plates off of another car so that he wouldn't be detected if he's driving his he own car. He went to the house twice. Came back a third time before he finally did it. I think clearly that's a lot of planning. But one thing I've noticed is a lot of times criminals dispute the minutia and if, if they feel like the narrative coming from the law enforcement has a little something wrong even if the big picture is right then they really get upset about that and dispute that the twisting of the words right yeah maybe he thinks that he feels like words were put in his mouth in the criminal complaint and it's another example too of him placing the blame on law enforcement instead of himself yeah that's a common narrative through this letter and it's weird how the letter is kind of, on one hand, childish in a lot of ways that he answers things. And then on the other hand, it's kind of this this monster. It's like, is he manipulating us or is this really just how he is? Yeah. That that question was one of the ones that I added, you know, when I sent the second letter. And it, it came from that 2020 special. My wife and I watched Dateline in 2020 and 48 Hours and all those shows. And this one on the BTK killer included uh, this reporter named Larry Hatterberg from Wichita, Kansas, who is a reporter I've always looked up to, just a legend in that area. He wrote letters to the BTK killer in jail after he was caught. And he was very respectful in his questions, respectful to the victim's family, I mean. And the questions he asked were, you know, legitimate questions that would further the story, not just... Trying to sensationalize anything or get any gory details exactly or like uh, that. avoiding the sensationalism and and just really trying to advance the story he really focused on trying to probe into at what point did the btk killer know that he was different that that he might do something like this one day and he got some worthwhile responses and so that's kind of what i was going with with this question and that was my inspiration for that and then again 
the the part about the Ted Bundy series is these journalists were interviewing Ted Bundy for a book that he was cooperating with. However, they couldn't get him to admit that he did any of the murders. At that point, he was still proclaiming his innocence. And they got him to talk about it when they changed how they phrased the questions. They, they started phrasing them as, what goes through the mind of somebody who might do something like this? Or what might someone like this be thinking when they carry out these crimes? And all of a sudden, Bundy started going into great detail. And so that was the inspiration for my last question, which was, what goes through the mind of somebody who wants to carry out something like this? And Jake Patterson's answer was, at the time, I was really, really pissed. I didn't, quote, want to. The reason I did this is complicated. This podcast is sponsored by the new CARE 11 app, now totally redesigned to make it the newest, easiest, must-have app for Minnesota weather with interactive radar, video forecasts, and hyper-local accurate weather alerts. It is still coming in with a lot of lightning and thunder. We do have a few warnings out for a number of counties. From the hottest days to the most severe storms, stay on top of it all with the new CARE 11 app. Download or update today. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. So after the answer there, there is one more thing. At the bottom of the letter, he writes, no one will believe or can imagine how sorry I am for hurting Jamie this much. I can't express it. Again, here he's giving an apology for, quote, hurting Jamie. But at the same time, he's not apologizing for the things he did or really, you know, acknowledging what's wrong with the things he did. Killing the parents, plotting this out, keeping her away from her loved ones for so long allegedly at this point. And so I think a, a lot of people saw this line as phony. Yeah, notice there's not one mention of Jim and Denise Kloss in this entire letter. Not at all. So that's the front of the letter, but that wasn't it. You flip it over, and what's on the back? Well, on the other side of the letter, it looks like written in pencil in bubble letters, almost like a child writing. It says, I'm sorry, Jamie, for everything. I know it doesn't mean much. And that's an extremely creepy part of this letter. And at the same time, it, it goes to that a lot of this letter seems very childlike, like this part here. Agreed. And, and at the same time, a lot of it is this potential monster. I remember that being the part that gave us the, mo- the most heebie-jeebies of the whole situation, of the whole thing. His, not even his answers, it's those bubble letters on the back. Yeah. So if you could say what your biggest takeaways from this letter, what would they be? I think the biggest news here is that he says he's going to plead guilty and he's confessing. The authorities have a confession, they say, but having a second confession, which is independent of law enforcement, is huge. Because if there are potentially any problems in court with the confession that law enforcement obtained, because that's something that in these cases they always fight. 
they always try to fight that, you know, someone wasn't read their rights properly or, you know, it wasn't handled properly. And they try to, defense attorneys always try to get those confessions thrown out. Well, I mean, down the road that this could serve as a second confession. And then back to the point of pleading guilty on the 27th, if he follows through with that and pleads guilty on March 27th, that would mean that this case that took 88 days to find Jamie would be wrapped up in two and a half months. That's incredibly short for a murder case of any sort. And not necessarily what we were expecting. People were so distraught over the idea of Jamie potentially having to get on the witness stand and go through these details. She was spared a lot of the details of what happened during the 88 days. That stuff would probably potentially come out in a trial. And having to get up there and sit in the same room as the person accused of doing it. I can't imagine that. And, and really, I, again, when I talk about protecting my emotions in this case, that's something that I just refuse to think about at that point because I didn't want to imagine her in the courtroom facing Jake Patterson. None of us even wanted to go there. No, no. And it, it was down the road. So if he follows through with pleading guilty, this case is over. Barron is able to heal and Jamie and her family, most importantly, are able to heal much quicker than they potentially would have if there were a trial. So going all the way back to the beginning, take me inside your mind. Why did you write to him in the first place? Well, I think it's interesting to pose questions to somebody accused of a crime in major cases, in a lot of major cases, but not every case. I think if there's somebody who's proclaiming their innocence, then it's natural to reach out to them and say, hey, I want to hear your side of the story here. We have the police side of the story. We want to hear yours now. And in this one, even though there is an apparent confession and we have all these details in the criminal complaint, there are a lot of lingering questions. Way more questions First and unanswered. foremost, why? Why, why, why? That's what we want to know. He's, he's in jail. He's sitting by himself. He already apparently confessed. So I just thought, well, why wouldn't he respond to me? It's worth a shot. Maybe he wants a chance to explain himself. Going back to the day that you get the letter, tell me about that experience of finding it. Well, like I mentioned, I was... My mind was on other stories at this point. I'd focused so much attention on the Jamie Claus story. We felt like we had the good news of her being found and then the horrible news of finding out the details. And, and finally, it was like, you know, okay, time to put my brain on something else, you know, until we get to the point where we have the trial and need to worry about it again. We all had some breathing room where we, it was a little bit distant from our minds right. at this point. It felt good after everything that everybody had been through. And so walking in, I see that letter. And you know, it, and as I walked in, I see my mailbox and I check it every single day, just glance over. When I saw a letter there, I pulled it out. Either he is going to just keep it short and say, hey, quit writing to me, I'm not going to talk. Or it'll be, if it's any longer than that, it's going to be a, a heck of a day ahead. And as I open it up, I saw those bubble letters on the back of it, and I saw everything he had written. I'm like, okay, this is going to be a busy day, and it's completely going to change this case. And for the people out there listening who don't work in the news industry, they might not know the steps that we have to take to authenticate something like this. You can't just put it on the news without doing any kind of get without getting any kind of background info into it. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, the worst thing that would happen is if we ran a story and then we find out later that this was another jail inmate posing as Jake Patterson and we got fooled, right? Or anybody posing as Jake Patterson. Exactly. So my first call was to Sheriff Chris Fitzgerald. And the first thing he said to me was, well, I've been waiting for you to call me for about a week now because he knew about the letter. 
And so, you know, we, we worked to confirm that it did come from Jake Patterson and not from another inmate at the Polk County Jail. All the mail that goes in and out is read by authorities. And if it's stamped, that means, yeah, it's coming from the person who it says it's from. And so it was confirmed. Also really important, we called Jamie's aunt, Jennifer Smith, who's now her guardian, her godmother, who's raising her and Jamie's living in her house. And I, my first question was, Jennifer, were you aware that Jake Patterson sent me a letter? And she said, yeah, Sheriff Fitzgerald had already told her about it. And I explained that there are some parts of it that are certainly newsworthy. And she understood that that it was and that we would be reporting on it. I asked if she had any questions and she did have concerns of whether the letter went into detail of some of the things that might have happened during the 88 days that that uh, Jamie was taken. And I told her that, you know, I didn't go there when I asked the questions. He didn't go there in his answers. And even if he did, that's something that we would protect to in order to protect Jamie. And so she she knew that we were going to do a story and she was okay with it. Another thing is the letter is folded. If you follow the folds on the piece of paper, it looks like it was folded into a paper airplane. So you kind of get this picture in your head of him having written the letter and sitting there throwing it back and forth as he sits lonely in a cell with a paper airplane. It's kind of a, a creepy image in your head. And I think that this is also a testament to how close you got to the case. I don't know a lot of other reporters who write a suspect a letter in jail and even think to do that. I, I hope that I wasn't the only one that did it because I, I think that a good journalist should. I would bet that the questions I asked were more specific and more detailed than probably any other letter that he may or may not have received. And I think that maybe was critical in eliciting a response because if you write a letter, hey, I, I'm just wondering uh, why you did it. You know, that'd be like, okay, Too vague. Ma- maybe he got three or four of those letters. But this one goes, why did you confess and why did you go into such detail? It's like that that's a little more specific and it's maybe it'll flip a switch inside of him that'll elicit a response. He'll see it as an opportunity to share his side of the story. I think this is proof that that it worked because it is so rare to get a response like this before a case is over. And this isn't the first time you've done this, right? You've written to suspects and criminals before. Over the last 15 years, I've done it a lot. This is the only response I've gotten on a murder case that is still in progress. I get, and a lot of reporters get, prison mail. And 99% of it is inmates whose appeals have worn out and now they have nowhere else to go and they're going to proclaim their innocence to a reporter and hope that they pick it up and make it a Netflix series. To wrap it all up, what kind of impact did you think that this could have on Patterson's case? Well, I think that it helped the prosecutors. I, I thought right from the beginning, you know, they wouldn't comment officially. However, I think that this is a confession and it also is a show of a lack of remorse. Even though he says in two separate instances here that he has, re- that he has remorse and that he's sorry for hurting Jamie, I think the absence of any sort of remorse for what he did to Jim and Denise Claus speaks volumes. And I think that if it came down to it, prosecutors could use this in one way or another in the case against Jake Patterson. And it's another tool in getting a conviction. Please make some room. The family's got to get to the side of the room. 
Three weeks later, dozens of reporters and photographers return to Barron as 21 members of Jim and Denise and Jamie's family enter the courtroom to see if Jake Patterson fulfills the promise he made on the letter. I was informed yesterday there may be a plea agreement. Is that true? It is true, Your Honor, and I'm prepared to recite that for the record. If you would, please. The plea agreement is that Mr. Patterson will plead guilty to counts one, two, and three. Jake Patterson agrees to plead guilty to murdering Jim and Denise Kloss and kidnapping Jamie Kloss. And in exchange, prosecutors in Douglas County will not file charges for anything he may have done to Jamie while she was held captive at his cabin for 88 days. Mr. Patterson, is that your understanding of the plea agreement? Yes. Uh, Mr. Patterson has wanted to enter a plea from the day we met him. This is his choice. We represent him. We work for him. And this is what he wants. And this is what we're going to do with him. The murder charges carry an automatic life sentence. This plea bargain doesn't affect that. And upon conviction shall be sentenced to imprisonment of life. How do you plead to that charge? Guilty. Patterson pleads guilty to killing Jim Kloss. As Judge James Babbler begins reading the charge for the murder of Denise Kloss, we can hear Patterson sniffling. How do you plead to that charge? Guilty. And as the judge reads the charge of kidnapping Jamie Kloss, Patterson is tapping his legs so loud everyone in the courtroom can hear it. How do you plead to that charge? Guilty. I find that there is a factual basis to accept the pleas and find Mr. Patterson guilty of counts one, two, and three. Then Patterson stands up and looks back toward the camera. And right after the clerk cuts the microphone, Patterson calls out, Bye, Jamie. And the deputies quickly push him out the door. Next time on 88 Days, the case comes to a close in an emotional hearing. We were able to put the pieces together, and one person did that. That was my niece. She saved our family. The healing can finally begin as Jake Patterson learns his sentence. There is no doubt in my mind that you are one of the most dangerous men to ever walk on this planet. Everyone's blood runs cold as the judge reads Patterson's own words. Before I did this, I planned on taking multiple girls, killing multiple families. And a message for the killer written by Jamie herself. He can never take away my spirit. He can't stop me from being happy and moving forward with my life. This is 88 Days, The Jamie Kloss Story, a CARE 11 original podcast in association with Vault Studios. Check out 88dayspodcast.com for more information on the Jamie Kloss case. 88 Days is written and produced by me, Lou Raguse, and Ellie Coder. Original music is by Dave Mailing and Emily Havick. And original artwork by David Malman. Thanks to Dan Crow and Atomic K Productions for audio help. Special thanks to Care 11 management and staff for their contributions, the people of Barron, Wisconsin, and the Kloss family. Growing up here, dealing with everything that's going on now, I'm surprised this town's even standing. Bardstown, Kentucky is a small town in the heart of the Bluegrass State. But Bardstown, Kentucky also has secrets. Five unsolved murders over four years. 
rumors and theories, and still no one is behind bars. I've been 100% free. Listen to what I'm saying. You listen to what I'm saying. Bardstown, a new podcast from Vault Studios. It's been you know, almost six years. There's still not a lot of answers. 